0: defensive. And yet, Paul, as we read what he writes here, he's defending himself, but he's doing it in such a way that it doesn't come across as defensive. And then the second point I would make I, as as we look at this passage, particularly, the question I have to ask myself is, I, am I, can I say the same things that Paul says about a ministry or how I minister to people? So let's, let's read it, and then we'll, we'll look up, we'll look at the verse by verse. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God, and the Lord will add a blessing to the reading of his word. So Paul starts off by picking up a subject that he touched on in the first chapter in verse 5, where it says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sakes. And so he appeals to the hearers or the readers to affirm the truth of what he's going to say about in this chapter. So he turns to them and he said, when I come to you, I came to you, you know the results of the ministry. Basically, if I was to paraphrase it, I'd say, ask anyone and they will tell you how we conducted our ministry while we were with you. They know his entrance unto them was not in vain. And in in the ninth verse of the first chapter says, for they themselves declared concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It was not in vain because they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. There is nothing empty, and vain basically means empty. There is nothing empty about Paul's preaching at Thessalonica. It produced results. Eldon's on online with us, and, and Eldon and I are in a Bible study on, on Thursday night where we were looking at the sower and the seed and the parable there in Luke. And in that parable, there's 25% of the seed falls on good soil and produces results. In this, in Thessalonica, it seemed like there was better than a 25% return, but it produced results because their lives were changed. Billy Sunday used to tell an illustration, and he, he was walking down the street, and Billy Sunday was a great gospel preacher of many years ago. He's walking down the street, and someone said, Mr. Sunday. And he said, yes. And he goes, you see that guy over there in the gutter? That's one of your converts. And Billy Sunday said, you're right. It's one of my converts because if it was God's, he wouldn't be in the gutter anymore because when the gospel is received, it changes lives and it's not empty. Look at verse two. Even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. So when Paul arrived in Thessalonica, about three days journey from Philippi or so, he was coming from Philippi and he still bore the marks of his beatings and his mistreatment at Philippi. In Acts 16, we read about that. It says, Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, you put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So I, in my mind, as I picture it, he shows up to preach in Thessalonica, and you can still see probably an eye closed who knows what other marks of his beatings were still on him. And yet he comes and he ignores his previous beatings. He risks another beating and he preaches the gospel. So his mistreatment and suffering at Philippi did not deter him from preaching the gospel. I want you to think about that for a second. I mean, Some of us are shy about preaching the gospel or sharing the gospel because we're afraid of being mistreated or non-liked or who knows what. And here's Paul who has been beaten. Could be what has been beaten, coming to them and and continuing to preach the gospel, the very thing that caused him to be beaten in the first place. One of the things that he's writing them is to comfort them in in their persecution and, and what they're going through. And so Paul New persecution, and he was demonstrating to them how he did not let persecution affect his preaching of the gospel. It did not affect his ministry. Now, I don't know that I could say that of myself. If I was persecuted, I don't know if I could say it doesn't affect my, my ministry, that it doesn't hinder me, but Paul could say that. Paul could say that, and so his courage his courage sets a great example to the believers in Thessalonica so far to be bold because they were suffering, and he's encouraging them to be bold like he was bold. While persecution might cause some to be timid, it did not cause Paul to be timid. And so he can say that I was, he was bold in the face of much conflict. He was bold in the face of much conflict. I don't know about you, but the more I study Paul, the more I realize that he could he, he's one of the few could say, be an imitator of me as I am like Christ.
1: Because he exhibits Christ in his life. Let's look at verse 3.
0: For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. He's going to be very transparent. He's going to explain himself and his motives to the believers he's writing to. It's obvious that Paul was under attack. It seems to me he's under attack because it seems to me he's justifying his ministry. And often when you can't attack the message, you, you attack the character of the, of the person who's speaking. And so it would seem like his, his character had come under attack, that his character had been attacked. And ultimately, as, as in the book of 2 Corinthians, if you can question his character, then you can question his message. And so they're attacking his character. And it's ironic that Paul is writing this from Corinth. So he's writing this from Corinth where we know later he writes because he had many distractors there. And this is where he's writing. And at Corinth, both his ministry and his character would come under attack. And that's why he writes this, the book of second Corinthians because he was under attack. And if you want to read a book, read the book of second Corinthians from, from the idea of Paul making an appeal and, and justifying his ministry. And when you read it that way, I think it will open up the book to, to some of that to you. And Paul's first going to deny what it is not, what his ministry is not. And then he's going to explain what it is. So he gives you, he gives you what he's not doing and what he's accused of. And then he's going to give you the positive a second. And so what he, one of the things he's going to tell us is that his ministry was marked by sacrifice and suffering. And that gave great credibility to his words and to his message. And so he, and the f- first thing he's going to talk about is, is from, did not come from error. And the idea here in the Greek is the bait or being craftier to entrap. Sometimes we speak of people setting the bait out to try to entice us to trap and and we're living a day and age where you get spam emails and I get spam emails from banks. I don't do business with saying my account's been closed. And if I don't click on this link and go immediately to this place to straighten it out, it's going to, and it's a trap, it's bait. And so Paul says, I didn't come with bait. I didn't come to try to entrap you. I didn't come with error. And the next thing he says, he says, not with uncleanness, and there was no mixture of error and, and sensuality in Paul's message, which is the idea here for uncleanness. And Peter warned us, Peter warned us about false teachers. In 2 Corinthians 2.18, it says this, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh through lewdness, one which has actually escaped from those who live in error. One of the problems with, in, in the society we live today is that pe- the preachers appeal to the flesh. They appeal to the flesh. And Paul would say that was uncleanness. That's uncleanness. When you appeal to the basic basics of the flesh and, and, and you're appealing to man's worse, you're appealing, you're doing it with uncleanness. And the next thing he says, nor was it in deceit. And Paul's message was pure and true. In 2 Corinthians 4.2, when he's defending himself in 2 Corinthians, he writes similarly, he says, but we have renounced the hidden things Of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We have not we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. There was a reason why his message was not in vain, because it was a message that was true. It was a message that was true, and it was a message that the Holy Spirit could use, and people responded to it. I don't know about you, but when I sit and I hear a message, bells go off in my head when it's not true. When someone says things from the scripture that simply are not there, bells go off in my head. And I know that doesn't happen to anybody. And unfortunately, many people are taken in by false teachers because they don't understand what's true and what's not. But Paul could say it it was not with deceit. It was not to trick you. It was not with uncleanliness. It was very straightforward. And so I have to ask myself, is that true of my ministry? Am I straightforward? Am I trying to trick people? Am I trying to entice people? Do I appeal to their worst part of their character. Verse 4, and then he says this, but we have been approved by God. Approved by God. The Greek verb tense means he's been approved, that he's been approved by God, and it's an ongoing thing. God has approved him already. Paul had been tested and found to be valid, and God put his stamp of approval on him. That's the idea here. God had put a stamp of approval on him. now, It's interesting that as he's defending himself, that he says, I'm approved of God. Well, the very people, and and the same thing comes in 2 Corinthians. At the end of the book of 2 Corinthians, he goes, examine yourself. If you're in the faith, then that must mean my ministry is true. (laughs) Because if my preaching brought you to faith, then I must be true and my message must be true. And if you're not saved, then obviously, then my message isn't true. But he he could say that about himself because the response to his message that he was approved, he was approved of God. And then he says, not as pleasing men. Paul did not seek to please men. Paul's preaching was not to gain favor with men. I don't want to say Paul didn't care what people thought about him, but he didn't preach to cause people to like him.
1: I think too many times that's a temptation for someone who speaks. You know, as someone who who
0: goes around and speaks at different assemblies, that's always a temptation is, do I preach this message or I soften the blow or do I... Sometimes I'm done. People say you stabbed me in the back or you stepped on my toes. Well, it's never my intention to step on toes and it's never my intention to stab someone in the back. And I mentioned that at one place I was at at Claremont and the person came up and said, you didn't stab me in the back. You stabbed me in the front. <laughs> but sometimes you, you wonder if I soften my blow and I don't really say what's on my heart and teach what the Bible's teaching that. They might not invite me back next time. I might fall out of favor. And if that's what motivates your ministry or that's what controls what you say,
1: then Paul says that it's because you're, you're preaching to please men. But God, the final test of preaching is what God thinks. And so we see, he says, not as pleasing
0: men, but God who tests our hearts. It's a wonder how many times as you read the scriptures that Paul appeals not to his conscience particularly, but to the fact that he has a clean conscience before God who tests his heart. He knows it's God who sees the heart. Paul did not attempt to please men since his goal was to please God. and Paul was convinced that God approved of his preaching. That would be something to rest in the fact that you know that you're approved of God and that Paul could say, I'm approved of God. Paul could look at the results of his preaching and say God had approved him because of his ministry and because of the people who have come to know the Lord Jesus. Verse five, for neither at any time do we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is a witness. So he. He starts off telling them what he did not do. He did not use flattering words. Flattery is an attempt to boost a person's ego. Paul did not puff people up to gain a hearing. He did not tell them what they wanted to hear. He did not build them up. He was honest with them. He told them right where they stood. But then he also, nor as a cloak of covetousness. Paul was not in it for the money, Paul was not in it for the fame. In fact, Paul reminded the Corinthians he did not take money from them. In 2 Corinthians eleven seven, it says this. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? And one of the attacks, as you read in 2 Corinthians, that they were attacking him is his message and his ministry must not have you know, much value since it didn't cost anything. It didn't cost anything. And so the false teachers were robbing them, as Paul would say, or putting them in bondage because of how much money they were taking from them. And they were saying, well, we're worth it because you give us money, and, and Paul's message is valueless because he takes no money. And so he asked them, did I rob you? So Peter would tell us that the mark of a false teacher is that they're in it for the money. And in Second Peter 2, 3, it says, by covetousness, They exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and the destruction does not slumber. And if you have a King James Bible, I like the way it puts it. It says that they make merchandise of you. They make merchandise of you. They're being exploited to get money from them. And Paul could say, I never did that. I never did it. It was covetousness. And then notice, if you would, on the flattery appeals to them because they know whether he was speaking words of flattery. But for covetousness, since it's a sin of the heart, he appears to God. God is my witness. God is my witness. They couldn't see his heart. They didn't know if he was covetous. But he could say he did not do it because of covetousness, and then he could say, God, God is my witness. Isn't that great to have a clear conscience before God and to say, I don't preach for covetousness
1: reasons. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. Verse six. Nor do we seek glory
0: from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Nor do we seek glory. Glory seems to come in many forms. And unfortunately, we're often blind when it comes to ourselves and quick to identify it when we see someone else who we think is seeking glory. And so I, as I've told you in the past, pride is something I battle on a daily basis. And glory has something to do with that pride. And so I have to ask myself, how do I respond when others praise me?
1: Am I doing it to get praised? How do I respond when someone else is chosen instead of me? I have a dear fr- brother and is, is a friend, and he says, I, I've never been asked to speak
0: at that conference, and I don't know why, and I feel really bad about it because I think I'm better than
1: some of the people they've chosen. And I want to tell you, that's pretty natural,
0: that you've been used of the Lord, and you think you have something to say, and they keep passing you over to speak at a
1: conference, or they don't use you, or And then you have to ask yourself, what am I in it for? Am I in it for the glory
0: that speaking at a large conference or speaking at, or I'm really a servant and I'm willing to speak to small groups and, and it doesn't matter. But that's a question you have to ask yourself. Are, are, is, is your pride, is pride wanting
1: you to speak in a bigger venue or a bigger conference or, or be recognized by more people? But when you're battling pride, that's a question you should ask. Do I seek
0: others to notice me for a quality or a trait that I have? And How often do I act to draw attention to myself? Those are questions I ask myself as I read this passage. Do I seek glory? Do I seek that people... Now there's a sitcom that some of the older folks maybe have seen or heard of but there's a there it was called Frasier and Frasier was a person that within the first two lines of of meeting someone he had to let them know that he went to Harvard. It was the, the most important thing in his in his life that people respected him because he went to Harvard. And maybe, you know, someone like that, that he, they have to tell you something about themselves. They have to present their credentials. They have to tell you something about yourself. I went to an assembly, went in Buena park, which is my dear friends. And the, one of the first couple of times I was there, a, a very dear friend of mine and his wife were not there. And like the third time I went there and she called me over and she said to me, she goes, you didn't tell us about yourself. And I said, I didn't come to talk about myself. I came to talk about the Lord Jesus. And she says, well, that's a holier than thou answer. (laughs) You know, and sometimes at a conference, you have this whole list of glowing things that this person's done and who he is and his credentials. And there's some places to be honest with you. I think credentials mean more than anything else. And I have no credentials. I have no degree. I don't have a master's. I, I don't have a degree. I don't, can't say I was ever this or I was ever that because I'm, I've never been any of those things. All I have is what the Lord's laid on my heart, and that has to stand on its own. And so if I go to a conference and they go, Well, what can we say about you? And I said, There's not much to say because there's not much here. So do I seek the preeminence as Diotrephes did? One of the things the Lord convinced me of early on in my life that there's only one whose name needs to be preeminent, and that's the Lord Jesus, and it's not me. And when I give his name the proper place, then he'll take care of me, and he has wonderfully so those who are constantly seeking glory become a burden, and Paul could turn to them as a witness that he had not been a burden to them and he says we seek we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. he might have been a burden to you and King James, I think it says he might have been a burden to you. you've ever had a house guest we had we had an aunt. I had an aunt, a dear aunt, she's long gone now, but she used to come every Thanksgiving to our house. And she loves coming to my parents' house for Thanksgiving. And my parents didn't celebrate Christmas, so Thanksgiving was the big family holiday, and we'd all gather at their house. She would plop herself down on the couch and she wouldn't move for the whole time she was there. And we waited on her hand and foot, and the and the and the shades had to be a certain way, and the light had to be a certain way, and the noise had to be a certain way, and the kids had to behave a certain way. And and to be honest with you, you know, when she left, it was almost like she was a burden. We're glad to have her, but she was a burden. And Paul could say that he had demonstrated humility as such. He was not a burden to anyone. You know, he, he as apostle of Christ had every right to be a burden. He could have come in and had them wait on him hand and foot. You could have had them give them the best room and the best house and and the best breakfast. Went to uh, Houston for the elders and workers together conference. And we were hosted by a lovely Indian family that was that went to that assembly. And they said, what would you like for breakfast? And I said, anything that doesn't you don't have to cook. She we were there three breakfasts, and every morning we had a complete spread Everything you could think of, there was breakfast meat, there was pancakes, there were eggs, there were, you know, every morning was like that. And I don't want to be a burden to anybody when I visit them in their household, and she just, she she did it from a whole heart, and she did it to serve the Lord, and I appreciate that, but I would have been happy with the yogurt
1: and a piece of toast in the morning. But we didn't demand it of her, and we didn't require it of her, because we're, our desire
0: is not to be a burden. Am, am I a burden when I go places? But I think the, Paul followed the Lord's example when he washed his disciples' feet. He wanted to be a servant. And even though he was an apostle, he served as a servant. He served as a servant. Paul also say he did not exercise dominion over those who preached to as he as he wrote the Corinthians and he, in Second Corinthians one twenty four is not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy for your faith you stand. And there's some people who go around and they're preaching and they come into your assembly and they feel like and they, they act like they have dominion over your faith. Well, if Paul as an apostle doesn't have dominion over people's faith, then I don't see how anyone else has a right to have dominion over someone's faith. Let's look at verse seven. But we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherisheth her own children. So he denies the seven accusations seemingly made against him by his enemies in Thessalonica. That is deception, sensuality, fraud, fawning, flattery, covetousness, and and seek a material advantage. And so now Paul describes what manner of life he had when he was with them.
1: He says that he was as gentle as a nursing mother. You no know, picture that for a moment
0: and i don't know that i can think of something more gentle than a nursing mother a nursing mother who who his her whole def- attention and focus is on that infant and so that's what he's talking about and so instead of being a burdensome, a dead weight, someone to be waited on, he was like a nursing mother to them. He attended every one of their needs. And his own care and concern was for them and not himself. And so I have to ask my question how gentle am I?
1: How care giving am I? This word gentle, and gentle, only
0: occurs one other time besides he here, and it's in 2 Timothy 2.24. And it says, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they
1: may know the truth. And a servant of God must be gentle, I'm able to teach patient and humility correcting themselves.
0: Patient and long suffering. Patience and long suffering mark someone who's gentle. If you see a nursing mother, they're patient and long suffering with the child. Sometimes that's pain to themselves. And so my question is am I like a nursing mother when I'm
1: ministering? Am I patient and gentle? And Paul could say he was. Verse 8. So affectionately longing for you, so we were pleased to
0: impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you had become dear to us. And Paul explains the reason for his nurturing gentleness was love. He possessed fond affection for the Thessalonians. Think about that. He he possessed fond affection for them. He cared for them, and he demonstrated that affection by his care for them. And the Greek word translated here, affectionately longing, means to long for someone passionately, earnestly, and by linking it with the love of a nursing mother, his affection was so deep and compelling to be
1: unsurpassed. Wouldn't it be great to compare yourself to that? And Paul's love was like the Lord Jesus' love. It was sacrificial. He gave them not
0: only the gospel, but he also himself, his own soul. And, and here in the New King James, it says his own life. He was willing to give them his own life. And the Lord Jesus laid down his life for us. And Paul could say, I was willing to give you my own life. Think about that for a second. Here's this man who was willing to give his own life, who was gentle among them, who did everything in service to them. And he's having to defend himself because people are critical. I think it says more about the people who are critical than it does about Paul. But the Lord lays this out for us here. And so one of the questions I come away with is, how critical am I of others? I mean, all these other things can be true of you, but if you're very critical of others, then guess what? It's easy to
1: be critical. I can fall into that trap real easy. But at a great cost to himself, unselfishly and
0: generously, Paul set aside his life for the benefit of the Thessalonians. And then one thing I want you to notice here, in in Paul's mind, the gospel is not just a vertical relationship with God, but also a horizontal relationship with others. If our relationship is right with God, our relationship with others is going to be on the right basis. And there's a close relationship with sharing the gospel and sharing a life. Often, if you share your life, you can share the gospel. Often, if you share the gospel, you end up needing to share your life. Verse 9. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day. They might not be a burden to you. We preach to you the gospel of Christ. He, he's called to their memory how he conducted himself. The words labor and toil are not synonymous. Labor em- emphasizes a kind of work and toil, its intensity. It's intensity. So it was intense work, night and day. Paul was a tent maker, and often he made tents all day, and then he would preach all night. There's many servants of the Lord that work 40, 50, 60 hours a week, and then all their free time is spent serving the Lord. It's not an easy task. And Paul could say that. He labored night and day. I don't know too many of us who can say we labor night and day intensely in serving the saints. Paul wanted to make sure that no one was under the impression that the gospel was for sale. And he supported himself, not asking or receiving monetary enumerations for many. Now, in 1 Corinthians 9, he goes over very clearly how the workers of the Lord should be supported. But Paul himself set a wonderful example. Now, later on, when we, when you come to the book of Philippians, he receives a gift from the Philippians and he thanks them for it, not that he needed it particularly, but because it produced fruit in them, showing that they appreciated the work of God and were willing to support that. And he calls them fellow co heirs and fellow workers with him. So it's important we understand that. And we understand what he's saying here. But he could say that he had not been a burden to them, that he labored night and day, that he might not be a burden to you, and he preached. The gospel of God to them. What a what a wonderful example. No wonder his preaching was not in vain because of who he is. And so as as you read a passage like this, I just have to ask myself so many questions that come up. Am I like this? Am I like Paul? Can I can I say that I imitate Paul as he imitates Christ? Do I have a problem with with glorifying
1: myself? Do I have a problem with pride? Is my ministry in vain? Am I I deceitful in my ministry? Am I a man pleaser?
0: Believe me, I read this passage, and there's just so many questions I have to look at myself and just
1: ask it time and time again. And Lord, help us to see ourselves when we read
0: the scriptures so that we might become more like Christ, because ultimately that's our goal is to be like Christ. And God wants to conform us to him, and he uses the word for instruction and correction. And I read a passage like this, and I see a lot of areas that I
1: need to correct. And it convicts me. And I thank God that it does, because it means the Spirit's working. And I would
0: hate to say that my ministry was in vain. And I would love to say with Paul that my ministry was not empty. It was not in vain, that it has an effect. And sometimes we don't find out till much later. And sometimes God blesses us. I was telling Eldon yesterday, I preached in the jails for a long time. And there's two ministries that I've preached a lot in, and one's camps and one's jail. And and I'll tell you in camps, you have a room full of kids and you have them for a whole week and you preach 10 messages to them. You can build a wonderful message of the gospel and you often get a, a response. And the response is instantaneous and the fruit is right there for you to see. Now you don't know how lasting the fruit is but you see people want to get saved you go to a jail and you're in there for an hour and they bring the prisoners in and you can't touch them you can't stay and talk to them after you can have no contact with them you simply preach to them and they walk out and you never know and the Lord was very gracious to me and I was preaching at the rescue mission and two different occasions while I was preaching at the mission mission the Lord sent someone up to me to say did you used to preach in the jail? And they named the jail. And I said, yes, I often went down there and preached. I go, you know, you came and preached the gospel and I got saved. That your message caused me to understand for the first time I need to have a savior. And that happened twice. And, and all I can do is, is thank the Lord that he encouraged me in that way. Because sometimes we'll never know. We might share a track. We might share the gospel. We might preach to someone, never see them again. If we had time, I'd tell you my dad's testimony. My dad was saved because someone gave him a, a, a gospel of John. He never saw the man again. That man to this day doesn't know that his ministry was not in vain. But there is coming a day, I believe, at the judgment seat of Christ where he will see the effect that he had on the kingdom of God, and he will be rewarded for it. So sometimes we, we can see, like Paul could here and now, that our ministry was not in vain. But other times, I think we're going to have to be patient and wait, and and the proving will be at the judgment seat of Christ, where we reveal to us that our ministry was not in vain, that, in fact, God rewarded us for being faithful to him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and we thank you for this passage. Father, we would examine our hearts and see if these things be true of us. We thank you that you could set Paul forth as an example to us so that we might learn from it and see it, and we might know what it looks like. And then, Father, we would just thank you that the Holy Spirit is able to take the words of Scripture and use it as a sharp two-edged sword to pierce even to the very marrow of our bones. Father, reveal our hearts to us. Show us who we are and where we're at. And show us the ways in which we fall short of being like the Lord Jesus. So we might, like with Paul, saying that I might know him. That I might know him and be conformed to his image. That I might bring glory to his name here on earth. We thank you again, Father, for the time we
1: could have looking at the scriptures, and we give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.